All right. Good evening, everybody. Welcome uh, to summer seminars. So glad you're here. So glad it's cooling off. I'm definitely using one of their uh, dinner things as a sweat rag. So it's like the kind of preaching I grew up with. He, the preacher wasn't pouring sweat. He wasn't doing his job. So you guys might get a taste of that tonight. Um, but welcome. Thanks for being here. This is uh, session four of our summer seminar on the drama of scripture, kind of walking through this book on trying to help ourselves understand what the big story of the Bible is. And congratulations, you're here for the climax of the story. Like, if there's any part you want to be at, this is it, right? This is, yes, yes. Uh, This is the best part of the movie, the best part of the book, whatever you want to talk about. Um, So, glad you're here. As always, a disclaimer, we're about to cover 400 years of history and four gospels in you know approximately 45 minutes (laughs) which is uh impossible but we're going to do our best but remember we're not giving you like an exhaustive survey of the bible we're trying to help us understand the big picture right the big story uh, the grand story of the bible if you need a handout we got some back there i printed out a few if not i posted it in slack if you're okay with the uh electronic version but you will need it to help you stay on track in our 400 year journey. All right, can I pray for us and we'll dive in? Father, thank you for this day. Uh, Thank you for these people. Thank you for uh, this moment in time that we believe uh, is not accidental, but that your sovereign hand, like it has worked throughout all of redemptive history, has um, orchestrated this moment that we would be together to be able to, to study you, to learn more about you, so we could be better lovers of you and of our neighbor, and so that we could find our life in your story. And so we ask for your help now, um, wherever we're coming from, uh, into this, no matter what state of heart or mind, that you would meet us and you would capture our attention with uh, your story, and, uh, and it would shape us, uh, even right now. Uh, so help us, Holy Spirit. Help me as I teach. Help us as we listen. Uh, and we will give you all the glory for what you do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let me give you a recap, as I always do. Um, what well, we began this journey kind of looking at, yeah, come on closer. Yeah. I don't bite. Um, we began this journey by talking about uh, the Bible as a grand story, because that's not always obvious for that is telling one story from Genesis to Revelation. And we talked about how, why it's important that we understand the big story to begin with, right? And the way we summarized it in back, way back in session one was fragmented Bibles equals fragmented people. So if, we, if our Bibles are fragmented and chopped up and we don't have a sense that it's telling a big story, so are our lives. Our lives are going to be chopped up and following a bunch of different stories. The Bible, the biblical story is going to get mixed in with a bunch of other stories. It's kind of what the authors say when they, in that quote, if we allow the Bible to become fragmented, it is in danger of being absorbed into whatever other story is shaping our culture and it will thus cease to shape our lives as it should. That's always relevant. It feels especially relevant right now. So we're figuring out how lots of other stories like to soak up the Christian story into it uh, and, and morph it and twist it. And so that's why it's so important that we understand the grand story, to make sure we're living the right story and make sure our story hasn't gotten subsumed into other stories. Um, that makes sense. So we started with the biggest picture possible. Uh, by the way, this is why I summarize so much. It's because we want to understand the big story. So if you missed any part of it or whatever, I want to feel like you can jump back in and feel like you're... you're 
you're, you're tracking along with our big story. So if there is one big story, the meta-narrative of the Bible, uh, that's what meta-narrative means, just meta, big story. Um, it is the story of the coming of the kingdom of God. And what does that mean? That is so that God's will will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven, just like Jesus taught us to pray. And how does God bring his kingdom? Well, he does it through covenants. Um, because God chose it chose to do it this way. Uh, Covenants are these special relationships with people through whom he works out his plans in history to bring the kingdom to earth. So a summary of the Bible, if you were to ask, is God is a great king over everything who's bringing his kingdom to earth through a people, a covenant people living under his gracious reign. And we step back from the, uh, again, from the big story, uh, the way to think about the story of the kingdom is that it takes place in six acts. Act 1 and 2, which we did uh, in our session 2, God establishes his kingdom. That's creation. There's rebellion in the kingdom. That's the fall. Act 3, which we did last time, uh, the king uh, initiates redemption by choosing a people. He chooses Israel. Uh, Act 3, scene 1, we get a people for the king as they come out of the exodus. Uh, And scene 2, land for his people as God gives them the promised land. From there, they can be what God called them to be, a blessing to the nations, to the whole world. So now we're coming up today. We're going to do the interlude in Act 4. So interlude is the the time between the Testaments. There's 400 years between the ending of Malachi and the starting of Matthew. So we're going to talk about why that's so important. Uh, And then we're going to talk about Act 4, the coming of the King. Redemption is going to be accomplished in the coming of Jesus Christ. And then for our uh, last next to last session, we'll do Acts 5 and 6, which is spreading the news of the king, the mission of the church from Jerusalem to Rome, and then all to all, into all the world. And the final act that we're awaiting, which is the return of the king, when redemption will be completed. And in the very last session, we'll say, all right, now what is this, how does this shape your practices with reading the Bible and understanding it and stuff like that? Make sense? Oh, that was just a recap of that one. So what is Act 1? God establishes his kingdom. Uh, like a- any opening chapter of any book or play or movie or whatever else, what does it do? God, it gives you the setting. The setting is it gives us the sim- essential information about God, humanity, the world we live in, over against the competing secular stories of their day and ours. What it describes to us in Genesis 1 and 2 is a stable situation, a very good creation, a place of shalom. The human actors begin their work in the garden and history begins. Act 2, there's rebellion in the kingdom. Conflict is introduced as we encounter a mysterious enemy to God's plan who tempts the first people uh, towards the fundamental problem of the world, which is autonomy. A quest for autonomy, a a desire to separate ourselves from God. This is the sin underneath all sins. It's what alienates us from God. It poisons our relationships with other people and it distorts the goodness of God's creation. We saw that those spirals as Genesis 3 moved into Genesis 11, how all of God's good creation is distorted uh, by human sin, by human autonomy. And yet, there's a promise right out of the gate, Genesis 3.15, that it won't always be so. God will not abandon his people. He won't abandon the world he made. He's going to redeem them through the seed of the woman, as through a descendant from the woman's line. Uh, redemption will one day come. And then, last time, Act 3, Redemption is initiated. The king chooses Israel. This is where the uh, the action gets complicated uh, in our in our drama of the scripture. That is the conflict between human sin and God's good purposes for the creation intensifies and complications arise. We get to see God's blueprint for redemption. He enters into a partnership. That's a covenant with one man, Abraham. One nation that will come from him, Israel. That they should be his special people. Now, why they get to be a special people? Well, he calls them out 
and makes them his people as he saves them in the, through the Exodus. He gives them a place, the promised land. And the whole purpose of this, of being God's special people, is that they would be a light to the nations. So that the borders of God's kingdom would expand. So that all the world, all peoples of the world, would come to know him as the true king through the lives of his chosen people. As we discovered, as we walked through the entire Old Testament last time, uh, this is where the complication arises, that Israel fails in this mission through repeated uh, disobedience, through repeated autonomy over and over again. And because God's glory and renown among the nations is at stake in Israel's, Israel's life, he cannot tolerate their rebellion forever. So what he does, as a consequence of their rebellion, he judges their idolatry. Uh, he raises up foreign powers to destroy the temple, this very symbol of God's presence among them, and to carry the people out of the promised land, the gift that God had given them. Now they're sent off into exile. This is where we left off at last time. At the end of the Old Testament, the future of Israel is uncertain. Some people have returned to the land. The temple has been rebuilt, but it's not that great. It's nothing like its former glory. Their existence as a nation is tenuous. They live under the rule of the Persians. There's still a certain promise that, that keeps coming up through the voice of the prophets, right? Over and over again, a voice that keeps saying, repent, because the exile is not the end. There's, there's more to come. There's, there's more chapters to come. There's going to come a time when God will act decisively to establish his purposes on earth through a Messiah, that is through an anointed one. All that means that God has not forgotten his original promise. That's where we are in the story, this uh, dramatic cliffhanger and now we come to the climax any questions or comments about what we covered so far in the story does it all make sense everybody knows their old testament now sort of all right i'm gonna do things a little bit different tonight we have been doing like a long block of teaching and then small group discussion and then large group discussion this time i'm gonna do the interlude and then we're pause and we'll all discuss together and then i'll do Act 4, The Coming of the King, and then we'll discuss all together at the end. Is that okay? To break up the the longest teaching. All right. Let's talk about this interlude. A kingdom story waiting for an ending. This is the intertestamental period. This is the 400 years of Israel's history between Malachi and Matthew. You might be going, I've never heard anything about that. And that's, that's, lots of us have never heard anything about this period. So we've got to ask, why is it even important to understand what, what's happening in this intertestamental period? Because uh, as you're going to find out, it's really important to understanding the context that Jesus steps into and why it matters. So I mean, imagine if you were at a play. It, it, you know, we've been kind of talking about this as, as six acts. So imagine the curtain closed on Act 3 with everybody in exile under the Persians. And then it opens in Act 4. And now, like everybody's still in exile but they're all scattered everywhere but now the romans are the people in charge and you'd be like where'd they come from like what the heck happened in these 400 years so we got to understand what's happening to understand the coming of jesus and why why it all makes sense so why is it important as the old testament story draws to a close the people of israel living on the land in relative peace under the rule of the persians who have allowed israel to return but as the new testament story begins the context is quite different The Persian Empire has crumbled long ago, long since, and Israel now suffers under the brutal mastery of imperial Rome. Only a fraction of the people of Israel actually live in Palestine. The majority are scattered throughout the Roman Empire and even beyond its borders, where they too are subject to pagan masters. This is important. During this time, the Jewish people strain to reconcile their faith in God's promises of blessing with the ugly experience of life under a succession of increasingly malignant pagan rulers. 
That's the drama of this intertestamental period, this tension. God promises these things, and I, I don't think he lied to us. And yet, our experience under all these pagan rulers, increasingly worse, uh, climaxing in Rome, like, what's going on? Like, where are God's promises? Is there something wrong with us? Is there something wrong with him? Like, that's the whole tension of this. This, this play, takes place during what's called the diaspora, or the diaspora, however you want to say it. Diaspora just means the scattered. So that means the Jewish people, some are living in, in actual Israel, um, in Jerusalem. Most are scattered all over the place. And almost all, all of them are under pagan rulers, pagan kings who don't care anything about the Jewish religion necessarily. And we're, we'll look at some of it, but most of them have a bit of a tolerance. Like you can, be your, you can be your people, like you can have your customs, you can worship your gods, but you gotta pay us taxes and you gotta live by our rules. And by the way, we're going to appoint your priest and we're going to oversee everything for you. So it's, you know, they're scattered out and they're trying to figure out how do we be the people of God in, these, in the context in which we find ourselves. Under, under pagan rule, all these pressures to conform to the secular culture around us. Does this sound pretty familiar, right? We're, we're kind of still living this, which is also why it's important for us. All right, so let's look at this tension between Israel's faith and the circumstances they find themselves in. First of all, this is just a summary, a helpful summary of what Israel's faith was during this time, and and still, honestly. One, monotheism. Israel believed in one God, the creator of the world, and the rule of history. Second, election. We talked about this last time, what, what election is unto. It's not a privilege, it's unto it is a privilege, but it's a privilege unto mission, right? Of being a light to the nations. God has chosen Israel for a special purpose. Through this nation and no other, he would work to rid his creation of the evil that had marred and thwarted it since the sin of Adam. They believed in the Torah. This is really important. God had given Israel the law to direct its way of life as God's holy people and promised that if the Israelites would be, that Israelites would be blessed if they can continued in steadfast faithfulness to this law. That's how you be the people of God, wherever you find yourself. Fourth, the land and the temple is still really important. The lamb is holy because it's here that God dwells with his people um, in the temple. Nowhere else could the nation enjoy such rich communion with him. And in fifth, a hope for a future redemptive act. Though Israel would be judged and punished for its sin, God would yet restore to Israel the glory he had always intended for the nation. He would complete his redemptive work. See, this is like foundational faith, right? Foundational belief for the Israelite people. This is the promises they're holding on to. There's one God. He's chosen us. He's given us this way to live. He's given us a land and a temple where he's going to dwell with us. And one day he's going to fix all this, right? We have hope that someday he's going to do this. And yet, during these 400 years, they live in in, an incredible tension with the actual experience of their lives, right? says, yet these beliefs were severely tested by Israel's actual experience during the 400 years between the Testaments. Though the people had in part returned to the land promised by God, even, even those now in Palestine remained under the domination of one foreign power after another, almost as if their exile had never ended. That's really important, right? They're back in the land, but they're still in exile. They still have the experience of exile. Foreigners dictated their political life, which is bad enough. Far, less, far worse was the relentless pressure to conform to pagan culture. This threatened to undermine the nation's very existence and purpose as the chosen of God, through whom he would bring blessing to the world. As the people of Israel endured these centuries of testing and waiting, they wondered why God did not intervene to deliver them 
and vindicate his name among the pagans. I won't walk through uh, all the various pagan rulers that were over Israel at various times, but you see it was Persia until 331 BC, and then the Greeks took over, first of all, under Alexander uh, from 331 to 323. And again, all, all this, most of these people, what they did is like, it's, it's a pluralistic society, right? You can have your gods, you can have your religion, but we're also trying to conform you to, to the empire, right? And so the Greeks were like, you're going you're gonna to take on Greek culture. You're going to take on Greek language. You're going to take on Hellenistic culture. Um, and so it makes it all, all the more for Israel to try to maintain its own identity and its own religious customs when there's all this pressure to, to be Greek, to, to conform to the people that are over you. You've got the Ptolemies in Egypt, 323 to 198. That's a long time. And then the Seleucids, Seleucids. I don't know how you say that. Anybody know that? Any historians here? No. Okay. We're going to go with Seleucids. <laughs> Uh, in Syria, 198 to 142 BC. And what happens here is, is kind of important because this is under, under the Seleucids. Uh, they have this king named King Antiochus IV. And this, this leads up to the Maccabean Revolt in 164 BC, which is the story of what? Hanukkah. Yeah, this is the story of Hanukkah comes from. So just to help you understand, like here's a little slice of what living under this pagan rule at the time. So King Antiochus on the 25th of December in 167 BC, he deliberately, to, to provoke the Israelite people, he deliberately uh, desecrates the temple. So you know, you know how important the temple is, right? The place where God dwells amongst them, the place where they can go and worship. Like, it's like the place where the rest of the empire can't touch. And then here comes the king, and he walks in there, and he, he puts up uh, a, a, um, uh, an idol to the god of Zeus. Like... This one of the most offensive things you can do. The preeminent god of the Greek pantheon puts a um, puts a, an idol for them to worship, and then he offers up a sacrifice of a pig, which is the most unclean animal in the Jewish whole system, as a sacrifice to the god Zeus. Okay, that's what they're dealing with. And so the Maccabean revolt happens three years later to the date. So on February on, on uh, the twenty fifth of December one sixty four BC, three years to the day. From Antiochus des- Antiochus's desecration of the temple, Judas, Judah Maccabee. By the listen to this, it sounds familiar too. He rode into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, with people waving palm branches. Remember that? He cleansed the temple, removing it from these these images of the Greek gods, the foreign altars, and all the other things that they despised about pagan worship that were now in their temple. They cleansed it all out. They rededicated the whole temple to the Lord, and they called for a new feast. And that feast is called Hanukkah established to memorialize this remarkable deliverance of the Jews from their pagan overlords. So like the Maccabean revolt was, um, was hope, right? was hope that maybe things will actually turn around for us. Like we finally, we, we cleansed the temple. Uh, now maybe we can like actually recover. Um, and they had independence for about 80 years, 80 year period of Jewish independence and self-rule under the descendants of Judah Maccabees. But which is a recurring, a recurring thing in, in, in Israel's story is as the kings go, so goes the nation. So the kings that were underneath them uh, were compromised. The Hasmonean kings, this is where Herod is of the Hasmoneans, um, they, were, they were compromised. And so even, uh, even under the time, even though they were free for a moment, uh, all these kings compromised. And so they went back to um, 
back, back under foreign rule again, which this time was under the Romans, beginning in 63 BC, all the way through the New Testament, uh, New Testament period. But being under Rome is different. Being under Rome is worse. Rome chose to rule Israel indirectly, and so they would put figureheads over them, these puppet kings and governors. The last of the Hasmonean kings was Herod the Great, the one that's in the New Testament, and his descendants, they're completely compromised. And Rome also puts a bunch of uh, uh, procurators, or prefects, over them, which is like Pontius Pilate, which we'll get to later in our story. The Roman government, not the Jews, makes the appointment of the temple's high priest. Like, back to this thing, except the Romans are even worse. If you even begin to rise up, they're going to they're gonna crush you. They're going to destroy you. It's okay, so that's, so you, get, you see the tension, right? Here's what we believe, but here's what's happening over and over and over and over again. Even we had like a false start with the Maccabean Revolution, and yet it fell apart because the kings were compromised once again, the, the Jewish kings. So what happens? How does Israel react to this tension that they're living in? And these, this is really important for helping understand what happens when Jesus comes. One is the rise of the oral tradition in addition to the law. So think about it. If the nation, though physically restored to their land, was still politically and religiously a nation in exile, it must be so because God had not yet finished his judgment on the people for violating his covenant. Thus, they could expect a full and final deliverance only when they had demonstrated a sufficient measure of faithfulness to the Torah. As a result, an oral tradition of teaching sprang up in which, in which scholars sought to apply the anxious, ancient laws of the Torah to the new situations in which the people found themselves. In addition, they established synagogues in which God's law could be taught to the common people. This is where synagogues come from. Basically, we're still in exile because God's not done punishing us. So what do we need to do? We need to be extra, extra good. So not only the law, now we're adding the oral tradition of more laws on top of that to clean up our act, to reform Israel so that God maybe finally will let us out of exile. Does that make sense? Just the rise of the oral tradition centered in the synagogues. That's where you go to learn the laws of God, not just the laws of God, even the oral tradition, the extra laws of God to help us get out of this situation we're in. Secondly, a growing hatred of Gentile oppressors and compromising Jews. That's it's kind of understandable to some degree, right? You're, you, you're, you're under the thumb of these ruthless people. And now you know your, your fundamental calling was to be a light to them, remember? To bless them, to be a blessing to the nations. But you hate them because all they do is oppress you and tax you and put down your rebellions with, with increasing vitriol uh, and brutality. So the frustration and anger that Israel had always felt for its pagan masters now found a new target in Rome the most powerful and the most brutal of them all. The Romans ruled by force, fear, and intimidation, trampling on the cultural sensitivities of their conquered peoples, taxing them into penury. I don't know that word either. Penury? Bad. Taxing them a lot. Uh, (laughs) Forcing their own brand of Hellenistic culture down stubborn Jewish throats and meeting out savage punishments for any who oppose their will. Under this oppressive regime, uh, racial hatred of Gentiles increased in Israel and it spilled over to include hatred of anyone among the Jews who would collaborate with the Romans. So that's who? Priests, tax collectors, right? Anybody, our own people who would, who would collaborate with, with the Roman government? 
We hate them, and we hate all Romans, and we hate all Gentiles. Like, that's, that's what's happening here. As you can imagine, this growing hatred twisted their vision of their original calling to bless the nations, and it twisted their expectations for what the Messiah would come and do. So they, they held that Israel was destined to become the ruler of those who formerly lorded it over the Jews. So Israel would con- conquer and subjugate the Gentiles, and they would either willingly serve Israel or be destroyed by God's judgment. Israel's long years of humiliation had bred such hatred for the pagan oppressors that the dominant note sounded in Israel was not that the nations would flock to Zion to learn the ways of God. Instead, Israelites looked for the nations to be dashed into pieces like a potter's vessel. And this mighty act of deliverance would be accomplished by a Messiah. See what's happening? This hatred has skewed their vision of what it means to be the people of God and their expectations and the hopes of what the Messiah would do when he showed up. They, now they're hoping Messiah is going to take down all the pagans and put us on top. And now we'll lord it over them, right? We'll get them, we'll get them back for what they've done to us. Thus, the Israel to which Jesus came was a nation in which both hopes and fears were intense, even feverish. The people were weary of subjection to pagan masters, full of longing for the coming of God's kingdom and ready to act to help usher it in. That's so important to understand what Jesus is stepping into, right? All this, this long, these 400 years and more of oppression and what they hoped, how they hoped that would be relieved and what they hoped the Messiah would do. It helps explain so much of the misunderstanding about Jesus and who he actually was. And lastly, uh, the, a key component of what's happening in these 400 years uh, of how Israel reacted to the tension they're living under. They, they broke off into differing camps like we tend to do. They had differing expressions of Israel's hope for the kingdom. And you probably heard a lot of these people in your New Testament before. And you're like, who are these people? Who are the Pharisees? Who are the zealots? Well, let's talk about it just a little bit because it will help you understand these interactions. The Pharisees, these are like political parties to, to, to a degree. The Pharisees, uh, their, their expression of hope was separation and obedience. That's how we're going to be the people of God in this tension. Separation. A revolutionary change was needed to purge Israel of all the vestiges of pagan thought and practice. Obedience. A radical obedience to Torah among God's faith ones. Especially emphasized the aspects of Torah that mark Jewish people as unique. Circumcision. Food laws. Sabbath. Oral tradition. These things are what make us the special people of God. And they were ready to use political activism and even violence to accomplish their purposes. And they were successful. The Pharisees were wildly successful because they tapped into some of Israel's deepest desires, right? A longing for liberation, loyalty to the Torah, a long-held hope for a renewed kingdom. Alongside them is a different group called the Essenes. And they advocated for complete withdrawal temporarily. <laughs> so the idea, they also had a desire to reverse the compromise they, they experienced in, in Greek culture. But they were not content like the Pharisees to work within the system. Pharisees are trying to work within the political system. Essenes say, no, we're just going to withdraw from it all. Third bullet point, since they believed that the corruption of Hellenism had become so deeply rooted in Israel, reaching even into the temple and the priesthood whose members were appointed by the Romans, the Essenes turned their backs on it all. They believed that they alone were true Israel, heirs of the scriptural promises and the vanguard of God's liberating army. Many withdrew to form an alternative community at Qumran, outside Jerusalem, where they studied the scriptures, prayed, and enforced careful adherence to the Torah. That's why I said they were 
complete withdrawal and peace now until until the day comes. So the last bullet point. They believe that their faithfulness to Torah would bring God back to restore the fortunes of Israel. The Essenes did not participate in revolution because they believed that God would come back in his own time, sending a priestly and kingly Messiah to lead them in a war against Gentiles and compromising Jews. When that time came, they would be ready to rise up and slay the pagan enemies of God. But until that time, they took the quietest path of withdrawal, ritual purity, and prayer. So you got these two camps, right? You got... Pharisees, separation, obedience, but we're going to work through the systems. You got the Essenes withdrawing, waiting until the king comes and we're going to slay all the pagans. And you got the Sadducees, and their path is strategic compromise because they're the ones in charge. They're They're the official teachers of the law. They're the recognized representatives of mainline Jewish religion. They're members of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. So because they depended on the favor of the Romans to get and to keep their influential positions in society, the priests and Sadducees certainly did not have the revolutionary spirit of the Pharisees or the Essenes. They also lack the longing for change held by most Jews. Their own power had been established precisely because they collaborated with the Romans, and so they had every reason to maintain the status quo. And then finally you got the Zealots, who are all about violent revolution. It's just, this is not necessarily like a, a particular political party. It's more like a subculture that spans all the parties. So a lot of Pharisees were zealots. Um, Essenes weren't because they were waiting on the end to get zealous. <laughs> but so it's more of a subculture. Um, and, but they were willing to take up arms in violent revolution. They were loyal to the Torah. They fiercely resisted compromise within the pagan culture. They embraced the use of violence to achieve their ends. Were willing to be martyred for the cause if that should be necessary. All right, so you got these camps who all express this one hope in lots and lots of different ways uh, within within the nation of Israel. But lastly, you just have the common people. So uh, don't think everybody was like active parts of these camps, you know. Um, a lot of common people were, uh, most Jews of this period were not a part of any party necessarily. Most looked for a day when God would return to redeem his people from the pagan oppressors. They would then be free to obey the Torah and to worship God in a cleansed temple and a cleansed land. The promised Messiah was the focus of their longing. Until his coming, they would seek to be faithful so that God would speed that day. They would attempt to learn about the Torah at the synagogue and obey it as best they could. They would celebrate the festivals in their own towns and perhaps sometimes even journey to Jerusalem. They would pray, keep the food laws and Sabbath, circumcise their baby boys. They would wait and hope. And so, in the context of this fervent expectation, a young man from Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, would announce that the kingdom of God has finally come to Israel and is even now present in him. All right. Let's pause there and discuss a little bit these, this intertestamental period, this, this 400 years of waiting for the climax of the story. So a couple questions on there that I wrote down, but you can ask anything you want. But I think it's, it, it can make us think um, critically about our own times, because if you're like me, a lot of this resonated with some of our current experience, even as the Christian church today, Right? got all these camps that are embodying the Christian faith, deciding how we're going to relate to the secular culture around us very differently. Um, Anyway, so the questions are, how does the church today wrestle with the similar tensions between what we believe and the actual experience of living in a secular age? 
How do you see the differing expressions of hope within the church today, similar to like the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, etc.? Those questions kind of go together. So I'll pause there. Like, how do you, what are your thoughts on that? How do you, do you see some of this in our, in our, in our modern experience? One question. Yes. Not a whole lot. Yeah. Because they, because they were withdrawalist. Yeah. 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 What's that? Yeah. Nothing comes to mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mostly we just withdrawn. There's a lot of things. This, there's been a lot of archaeological digs at this Qumran society where they all lived. Dead Sea Scrolls came out of there. And so we've learned a lot about their community, but they were like a, it's like a monastery. It's like an early, early reclusive monastery. Okay. Yep. What else? How do you, how do you see the parallels with our own times? Yeah. That's so good. Like one of the quotes was in there. They believe they were the true Israel. Don't we all do that? Oh, we're the real Christians, you know. Not you guys. You compromised or you zealots or whatever. It's wild. The ways they're different seems kind of exactly the same. Yeah. You know, yeah. like more zealous, more more strict. Like, yeah. Doesn't seem like Yeah. I was thinking about it. We do in our, um, in our on-ramp community group, we talk about these various postures that we take towards the world today. We do fortification, uh, accommodation, and domination. That's all those, right? Fortification is the, uh, the Essenes, we're gonna withdraw. Accommodation is the Sadducees, we're just gonna collaborate and try to get some cultural power. And domination is the Pharisees, we're gonna take this back, baby. You know, like, it's all the same tune, just different. But don't miss, I. I the thing not to miss is um, they all had the same desire, right? They all said, they had the same hope, like for God to keep his promises, for God to, to bring his kingdom. Like there's a holy longing at, at the heart of all of this. And yet, and yet how it gets twisted, right? By our experiences amongst the pagan culture or the secular culture around us. And so, uh, sorry, I thought somebody started talking. I was like, that was a dog. Uh, not to say you guys talk like dogs, but just couldn't hear. Uh, yeah, it's just very interesting. Like, it makes me have compassion, right? Because you have this holy longing and you're not seeing it. And you feel oppressed. Um, and it's so hard to, like, um, to stay on track with, with God's desire to, for his people and to not get sucked into one of these camps who's saying, we know how to do it, right? We know how to fix this. We know how to make things right. One thing that struck me, and this is just, um, I don't know, it's very easy to be like, you know, these people were waiting and waiting and waiting without thinking about, like, the context of these people just woke up every day waiting. Yeah. So they have, and they could not do anything about that, and so their reaction yeah. was to, like, try to form up and say, like, here's our approach, here's our they just kept waiting and, they, and throughout their whole lifetime there was no uh, there, like none of that came to fruition yeah. like they were just kind of running around fighting with each other fighting with some power yeah. 
they supposed to do? I know. Yeah. Um, That's a really good point because when you feel so absolutely powerless to change what's around you and all of a sudden you're in, you're in a room with a bunch of people who are like, this is how we're going to fix it. Like yeah. suddenly you, you get a sense that you, maybe you are a part of something bigger and maybe you do have some power to really change some things. It's really interesting how when you feel powerless, you try to attach yourself to something that feels like you can give you some power. Yeah. I know. What was their action item after that? I know. Right. And that's, I think that helps us understand the lure of politics in our own time. Again, we feel powerless to change anything. Who can change it? The government can change things. So let's rally behind this or that or whatever else. Yeah. Yeah, Joe. I think that also makes has some parallel in our day too because like the overwhelming sense is that most people weren't in these parties but who do you hear about in the gospels pharisees 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 like i think that's kind of true of our day today like there's a whole massive i don't want to call them a big middle but most people are like hey i'm just i don't know i'm just being faithful but who do, who gets the headlines you know it's, it's these crazies it's the zealots it's the whatever else and so I think that's like, I think of the common people to me are like um, Simeon and Anna in waiting in the temple, Luke chapter 2. Like, you guys, you just get this sense of like, they've been coming to the temple day in and day out, just doing their thing, being faithful, longing for the kingdom of God, and then show up one day, and there's this child being uh, dedicated to the Lord, and the Spirit says, this is the one, you know? It's just like, those are the people, like, that's probably more like who most people were, but the headlines were made by the by the extremist which is same same in our day right <laughs> i do feel like there's one group that's missing this list yeah. which is the subset of the common people who have given up yeah because there's there's going to be some who just are part of the culture because it's what they grew up in yeah Yeah. Yeah, I might go to the synagogue once in a while and I'll 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there were, especially, I'm sure there was like a, uh, a deconstruction movement in their time. Uh, the ex- the exvangelicals of their time. It's like, yeah, I, you know, I go to synagogue some with my parents, but I also go to the, to the Greek temple. Like, no big deal. You know, yeah, there's certainly, certainly a feature there too of people who's like, yeah, I can't, I can't wait anymore. I'm giving up hope. <laughs> yeah. Totally. I, that's why I think this is so important because this interlude between Act 4 is very analogous to the interlude we're in right now before Act 6, before Messiah comes again. And that's, honestly, that's, that's the design of Advent, right? Every year, as we like put ourselves back into pre-Messiah Israel and, and like identify with that longing because they're the same as our longings right now. And it's, it's the same in the sense of like, what they were looking back to was the Exodus. That's when God acted definitively in time and history. And, and we hope he's going to do it again. What we look back to is, is the cross and the empty tomb, though. So it is, we have a little bit more to go off on. But we still have that same longing for the kingdom to be completed. So we have, we have the belief that it's, not, it's started, but it's not complete. So yeah, those, those longings are very similar. They're the same. And that's what I mean. It's like we can, it's easy to like get on these people and be like, how could you miss it so much? But you got to know it comes out of a place, a place of pain, a place of longing, a place of like, I want these promises to be realized now, you know? So how are we going to do it? Yeah. That's good. What about that last question? How does this background help you understand the events of the Gospels? Were there any... I don't know, aha moments for you were like, oh, that makes sense when Jesus did that, or, you know, or whatever else. I mean, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but. No, there were some, Simon was a zealot. One of them was. Uh, well, a, a later, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, Pharisee of Pharisees. Um, yeah, I, I would, I would assume, I probably should have looked this up, but I assume they were from a mix of these. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. For them, that's where the story ends for now. Yeah. yeah. I think it's easy to. It was always easier before in that background of like, oh, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes are all idiots, you know, like just be a common dude. Yeah. Um, but having some more understanding as to like, when you have that much oppression, it is really natural yep. to have these emphases. Totally. It, it, even if we walked away with a little more empathy or compassion for the, for the people like this in our lives, because you know it comes from a place, it comes from a holy place and a desire for good things. Um, but yeah, when you feel like you're, when you are oppressed, or even if you you imagine that you're you're oppressed to some degree, it yeah, it can turn you hard and bitter towards the people you feel like are over you, and. That's a lot of what's going on in our times right now. There's such intense feelings about those who um, have the power uh, over us, so to speak. So, yeah. All right. Shall we get to the climax? Act four, the act four. All right. All that sets us up for the climax of the story. Act 4, the coming of the king, which when redemption is actually accomplished. And this is such a big deal. Like, I mean, I already quote extensively. I'm going to quote a lot, a lot more because <laughs> I just love their writings really good and it's very helpful to understand. So starting right after, under that header. We cannot grasp the meaning of the story of Jesus until we begin to see that it is, in fact, the climactic episode of the great story of the Bible, the chronicle of God's work in human history. When his good creation was fouled by human rebellion, God immediately set out on a salvage mission. He had created it, that is the world, and thus it belonged to him by right. Now he would redeem it. He would buy it back for himself so that it might be restored to what he had always intended it to be. The Old Testament tells of God's moving among the people of Israel to make progress toward this goal, of his first acts of redemption and restoration, and of his repeated promises that one day he will complete for the world, for the whole of creation, what he has begun with this one small nation. In God's purpose, at last the very heavens and earth themselves are to be renewed and restored. In Jesus Christ, that renewal and restoration is revealed in his final shape as the kingdom of God. There's kind of a summary as a whole. In his life, Jesus shows what salvation looks like. The power of God to heal, to make new, is vividly present in all his words and actions. In his death, Jesus accomplishes that salvation at the cross. He wages war against the powers of evil and defeats them. In his resurrection, Jesus opens the door to the new creation, and then he holds that door open and invites us to join him. Gospel, from the old English Godspell, or good tale, means good news. And this is the best news there could be. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. That's really important. We're going to talk a lot about 
uh, hopefully we'll discuss this at the end too, but um, I don't think we always connect the word gospel to the kingdom of God has arrived. Normally, if I asked you, what, what is the gospel? You would probably say, Jesus died for my sins, which is true. And that is important. But it's actually, that's, that's one part of the gospel. The biggest part of the gospel is that the kingdom of God has broken into earth, to time and space in Jesus. Again, we can't uh, go through every gospel <laughs> in our short amount of time, but we're trying to make connections to the larger story, okay? So let's, let's look at these. There's kind of three major headers, Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. So let's, we'll, we'll walk through those. Number one, in his life, Jesus makes known the kingdom of God. He says, it's arrived in me, right? In, in human form, the kingdom of God has come. And let's remember these Jewish expectations that we just talked about. Here's another nice summary of it. The zealots espoused revolution. The Sadducees promoted compromise with the Roman authorities. The Pharisees taught strict cultural and religious separation. And the Essenes advocated complete withdrawal. Four different approaches, and yet they are all bound by a common loathing for the Gentiles, a deep-seated hatred, or at least wariness for all those outside the covenant. And then comes Jesus, who refuses to walk in any of these paths. His way is startling, startling, startlingly, should be, different. It is the way of love and of suffering. Love of enemies instead of their destruction. Unconditional forgiveness instead of retaliation. Readiness to suffer instead of using force. Blessing for peacemakers instead of hymns of hate and revenge. This is, so, this, this is, why, this is why people hated Jesus so much and why there was so much opposition to him. Because he didn't, he didn't dance to anybody's tomb. Right? And this is so important for us to figure out in our times as too. Like, we don't have to resort to these different camps or these different expressions, right? Jesus has showed us the way. But it's so important to figure out to see how Jesus takes on Israel's mission. So in a sense, Israel as a nation gets boiled down to one man, to Jesus. He takes on all of Israel's calling upon himself. So it's important to, to interpret each of the Gospels, to interpret the things that Jesus is doing and saying as the fulfillment of what Israel was called to be. Does that make sense? Or else, or else we wouldn't need the Old Testament to understand what's happening. So each of the Gospel writers is, concern, is concerned to show us that the stories they tell about Jesus' life are to be understood as episodes taking place in the context of a much larger story, this whole story we've been talking about. So for example... Uh, the stories tell us, the Gospels tell us that Jesus was preceded by John the Baptist. Why is that important? It connects us to the Old Testament prophets, right? The prophecies that there's going to be a forerunner who is to come and prepare the path for the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist is the, is the new Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. Some of, this, some of this you know because we talk about it at Christmas all the time, but Jesus was born in the city of David. This is extremely important. That Jesus is born in the line, in the lineage of David. Remember that covenant God made to David? Somebody from the, from the Davidic line is going to sit on the throne forever. And then Jesus has come and he's born in the line of David and even shares the same birthplace in Bethlehem, which is also prophesied in Micah. Jesus is circumcised when he's eight days old. That's not just a, oh, that's interesting, he was circumcised. No, he, that was a sign of him being engrafted into the covenant kingdom, the covenant community himself. Uh, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Why is that important? Because that's the very same place where more than a thousand years earlier, Israel entered the promised land and to become, to become God's light to the nations. They passed through the Jordan River. 
John's return to this place signals a new beginning for Israel, a new summons from God to carry out that that original long-neglected task. Though Jesus, unlike the others, does not need to be cleansed from sin, he identifies himself with the nation, taking on himself their mission to become the channel of God's salvation to the nations. While he is being baptized in water, the Spirit visibly comes upon him to equip him for his task. The Father himself confirms Jesus' calling, You are my beloved Son. These words of the Father affirm that Jesus is Israel's anointed king, here to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Again, you've seen all these connections to the story before us. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Like who? Like Adam in the garden? Like Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness? To go, their own, to, to, to go his own way, to assert his autonomy, or to go in the way of, of the popular culture. And, and yet where Adam and Israel failed before him, Jesus succeeds in trusting the plan of his father and not taking matters into his own hands. Jesus announces the kingdom. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time was fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I love this because, again, we're going to get there, but, you know, it's, it's 2,000 years later since this announcement, and yet many people who are Christians and who... Um, follow Jesus and want to follow Jesus know very little about the kingdom that's at the very heart of Jesus's ministry and the very heart of the story is what we're kind of going through here and notice that Jesus doesn't stop to stop to explain what the kingdom of God is he just says it's here he doesn't say by the way when I say kingdom of God this is what I mean and the reason he doesn't do that is because it's assumed that everybody knows what that is because of all these longings right you got, you got hundreds and hundreds of years of longing for the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says it's here, everybody knows what that means. But we don't because we're years removed from it and we're Westerner in, in democracies and we don't, we don't understand monarchies, right? So we, it's, it's a little foreign to us. But the question is, okay, the kingdom is here in you, Jesus. How? Like, how are you going to bring the kingdom of God? So this announcement, the Greek word here for good news is the word commonly used in the culture for the kind of announcement that brings great joy. It might be news of a wedding, the birth of a son, a military victory, or an enthronement introducing a new era of peace. Jesus announces the good news that God's power to save creation has arrived. God has entered into human history in love and power to liberate, to heal, to renew the whole world. God is now acting in love and power through Jesus and by his spirit to restore all of creation and all of human life to again live and live under the benevolent reign of God himself. God is becoming king again. And notice, immediately after he makes that announcement, what does he call for? A response, right? This is the kind of announcement, this is the kind of good news that, that demands a response. He says, turn from your false views of the world, embrace the reality and presence of the coming of the kingdom in me. You may not see the power of God and this is important, what we were just talking about, this tension. You may not see the power of God's healing kingdom breaking into history, but you can believe that in me, God's liberating power is now present. Hi, April. Give up your old way of life and trust me for a new one. Guys, what this, um, what this is so important, and you got to remember, all these different groups, even though they expressed the hope differently, they were all committed to what? Torah, Right? We center our lives around the Torah, the good things are going to happen, right? The kingdom's going to come. And what does Jesus say? Center your, your lives around what? Me. Turn from every other thing 
That's what repent means. Turn from every other ways of, of imagining world, your life, and center it around me. Not the Torah. Me. And that is a, a shocking turn and twist for the people who were so centered, had centered their lives on the Torah for so long. He says, the same loyalty you have right now to Torah, I want that to me. Because I'm, I'm the one that's actually bringing the kingdom of God. Notice, again, trying to connect everything Jesus does to the broader story. Jesus gathers a community. The newly gathered kingdom community of disciples to which Jesus speaks to is the beginning of a restored Israel. These 12, whose number represents the 12 tribes of Israel, are to become the nucleus of the renewed nation. Jesus models Israel's missionary vocation. Remember what Israel was called to be, to bless the world. So what does he do? He welcomes, he blesses the world. He welcomes the sinners and the outcasts, those shunned by Jewish society, receive from Jesus a warm welcome into the kingdom of God. All these people that said, you got to disassociate, you got to withdraw from these people, right? Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, the poor, the sick. Jesus embraces Israel's missionary vocation and goes out for them and brings them in, engages with them. And because of that, he arouses opposition to his kingdom mission, especially amongst the Pharisees. The Pharisees are looking for a kingdom in which Israel will be suddenly, forcibly delivered from the control of pagan Rome. They are separatist, self-appointed guardians of Jewish identity, which they believe is under attack, threatened by the people's assimilation to the surrounding pagan culture. Careful attention to food laws, tithing, Sabbath-keeping, and the choice of acceptable mealtime companions. These, these are all parts of the Pharisees' strategy to keep themselves pure. What Jesus does reject is what these things have come to represent in his own day. Separation, hatred, a thirst for vengeance. These things have no place within God's call for the Israelites to love their neighbors, to be channels of God's blessing to the nation, to be light to the world. Against the Pharisees' deeply held misunderstandings of Israel's identity and vocation, Jesus holds up Israel's missionary calling. His refusal to abide by their rules and to see things their way incenses the religious leaders because his story of what Israel was always meant to be shows that their story shows their story to be a lie. Does that make sense? That's why there's this such a showdown between the Pharisees and Jesus. Because they can't both be right, right? Like, either we eat with tax collectors or we don't. But you can't both be right, right? These are competing visions of what the kingdom of God is all about. And that's why the Pharisees are so incensed about him. Because if Jesus is right, then everybody else is wrong, right? And that's where we get to the surprises of the kingdom. The kingdom, when it shows up, nobody understands it. It's so surprising and different from what anybody thought. Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom of God. He demonstrates it in his actions. He gathers a kingdom community. However, this kingdom does not look at all like what the Jews expected. Jesus himself does not look like the Messiah of the Old Testament prophecy as popularly understood. The world itself does not seem much changed by what this prophet from Galilee is doing and saying. Jewish expectations seem doomed to disappointment yet again. For anyone in the first century Israel who takes the claims of Jesus seriously, perplexity and bewilderment reign. (laughs) Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom and apparently nothing major happens. Do you remember the story in Matthew 11 where John the Baptist, like the forerunner to Jesus, is in prison? (laughs) Uh, about to be executed 
And he sends messengers to Jesus. And what does he say? Hey, dude, like, are you the Messiah or not? Because if you're the Messiah, why am I rotting in prison? Right? That's even John the Baptist is wrestling with these, what he, what he expected Jesus to do and what's actually happening. He's saying, I don't, I don't see it. Are you the one or should we wait for another? That's what John the Baptist says. So what does Jesus do to help us understand the surprises of the kingdom, that, that it is quite different than anybody thought? Well, he tells parables to help us understand how his kingdom actually is. And if we had to, you know, there's tons and tons of parables, but if he had to summarize uh, the surprises that Jesus is telling us through these parables, I would, I would, they summarize it in these four. Number one, the kingdom does not come all at once. That's what everybody thought. When the kingdom comes, man, here it comes, right? In full force. But the parable of the sower and the weeds teaches that in the present, the kingdom, become, the kingdom comes by the sowing of the gospel. In the future, the weeds will be separated from the wheat. The parables of the mustard seed and the yeast suggest that though the kingdom at present is small and seems insignificant, it will in the future be glorious and impossible to ignore. The parable of the net teaches that in the present, all sorts of fish are gathered into the kingdom, but in the future, there will be a great separation. That's what theologians call the already and the not yet. The kingdom is here already and not yet. The old age and the new age overlap for now. So So the kingdom has not come in his fullness all at once. Second surprise. In the present, the kingdom does not come with irresistible power. Again, that's what everybody wanted. Everybody wanted the, the Messiah to come with just this brute force of power. And yet, again, in the parable of the sower, the Messiah does not come as a military conqueror, but as a humble farmer. The kingdom does not arrive in irresistible power and force, but by the message of the kingdom. The kingdom is hidden in humble form and makes its way in the world in apparent weakness. Some people receive the word, and God's power brings about the fruit of the kingdom, but others reject that message and seem, at least for now, to suffer no harm. Surprise number three, the final judgment of the kingdom is reserved for the future. We kind of talked about this to a degree. But redemption and wrath are two sides of one reality. God saves his creation by judging the enemies who have ruined it, but the parable of the weeds shows that the Jews shows the Jews that the judgment they expected does not fall immediately. The workers in the field want to root out weeds immediately, but the owner instructs his servants to allow both wheat and weeds to grow together. At the end of the age, the judgment will indeed fall. Until then, the powers of, king, of God's kingdom and of evil must continue together. Right? That means we're going to live in this tension. Always. While the wheat and the weeds are planted together, uh, we're going to live in this tension. And then fully, uh, the last surprise, the full revelation of the kingdom is postponed. Why? To allow many to enter it during the present age. Since the coming of the kingdom has already begun in Jesus, why does God not just complete his work? Why does he delay the final judgment? Why hide his kingdom's glory and power? When we find an answer to these questions, we can begin to understand our own place and calling in the biblical story between Jesus' inauguration of the kingdom and his final revelation. It's where the parable of the great banquet is so important. The enjoyment of the banquet is suspended, but the host has a very good reason for the delay. It is so that the lost can also be brought in to share at the banquet table. See also the parables of the lost sheep, the coin, and the sons, Luke 15. Conclusion of all these parables, describing the surprises, trying to help people understand the proper expectations of the kingdom. 
The parables reveal what the kingdom is really like in contrast to all the misunderstandings of Jesus' hearers. All right, second major point. So that was in his life, he reveals the kingdom of God. He makes known the kingdom of God. In his death, Jesus secures the victory of God's kingdom. Jesus reveals to his disciples who he really is. These two big revelations happen when, when Peter confesses him to be the Christ, the Messiah, and his transfiguration when his full glory is finally revealed to his disciples. And in the process of that, Jesus confirms his titles, the names that have been given to him, that he really is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He is God's chosen, appointed to usher in God's kingdom, but he is also the crucified victim and the divine son. He's the son of the living God. Behind these words, there's also rich Old Testament tradition. All the people of Israel, particularly Israel's king, as the nation's representative before the Lord, were designated God's sons. This title suggests a special relationship to God, and a special task to fulfill in obedience to God. And he also takes on the title of Son of Man. This is the popular figure in the book of Daniel who was given all authority, glory, and power and worship of all people and all nations. And he rules with an everlasting kingdom. But again, here is the Messiah with all this power. But how does he use his power? By laying down his life. Not by crushing the enemies, but allowing the enemies to crush him. It's a total reversal. And that's why Jesus talks so much about he reveals the way of the cross. Even literally as he's on the way to the cross, as, he on, as he's on the way to Jerusalem, he's teaching his disciples and two themes are dominating everything, which is the necessity of his suffering and also the cost of being a disciple. So, so Jesus is heading to the final scene, the, the final battle between the kingdom of God and the powers of evil. He is about to take the full force of cosmic evil upon himself and to exhaust its power. But for Jesus, the battle will not be by killing the enemy, but in allowing himself to be killed, to give up his life on the cross. And therefore, the disciples must truly learn what it means to follow Jesus so they can continue what he had begun after he has taken from them. To follow him means to participate in his mission, but in his way, right? In the way of the cross. And you see these themes, this, the necessity of suffering, the cost of being a disciple, this upside-down way of pursuing the kingdom, and everything Jesus does when he gets to Jerusalem. He concludes his kingdom mission in Jerusalem, and I won't walk you through all these things because you, you know them. They're at the core of our story. But again, to see how Jesus' way is different at every step of the way, right? He rides in to Jerusalem triumphantly, but on a war horse to come bring a, to bring a, a fight? No on a humble donkey, on a beast of burden, because he comes in peace. He enacts judgment on the temple. This is him judging the whole religious enterprise. (laughs) He's like, I put you here to be a light to the nations, and you've turned my house into a den of robbers. And he cleanses it out. Uh, He symbolizes his death uh, in, in the Passover, the blood of the covenant by which the kingdom of God will finally arrive. He's arrested. He's tried. And he dies on a cross, which is utter folly to the world, both Jews and Gentiles. I'll read this one long but beautiful quote. To the Romans, the cross is utter foolishness. Crucifixion is merely the worst of punishments routinely meted out to Rome's enemies. They are humiliated, defeated, tortured beyond human endurance, exposed in weakness, and then they die. Beyond that, the cross is a random act of cruelty. 
Yet the early church makes the bold and fanatical claim that the cross is the central act of God in all of human history. This boldness is the product of a radically different perspective because the church looks at the cross through the lens of resurrection. It is Jesus' return from the dead that validates his claim to be God's anointed Messiah. When one begins to look at the cross through the lens of resurrection, what at first appears to be foolishness is really the wisdom of God. What seemed to be weakness is really the power of God, conquering human rebellion and satanic evil. What appears to be humiliation is a revelation of the glory of God. God's self-giving love, mercy, faithfulness, grace, justice, and righteousness were revealed in the event by which God accomplishes the salvation of his creation. What seems to the world to be Jesus' defeat, the early church proclaims to be his surpassing victory over all the enemies who stand opposed to God's good creation. This apparently meaningless act of violence and cruelty, in fact, reveals the fullest purpose of God, his judgment against sin, and his power and will to renew creation. Seen in one way, the cross is a token of foolishness, weakness, humiliation, defeat, absurdity. Seen in another way, by those who know that Jesus is alive again from the dead, the cross is full of God's power, glory, victory, and purpose. The cross is the central, right? That's why we preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. That's where he takes Israel's vocation all the way. This is how he takes on Abraham to to bring the blessing to all the nations. How he takes on David to be the king who would lead us in faithfulness. Uh, All of it comes together at the cross. And then lastly, (laughs) we're covering like major things in five minutes. But (coughs) finally, in, in his resurrection, Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God. Remember, that's what it's all about. That's what he said in Mark 1. I've come to bring the kingdom of God. How does it come? Ultimately, through his resurrection. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he acts on behalf of all of us and of the whole creation. He is the resurrection. In dying, he takes upon himself the judgment of the world. In rising from the dead, he inaugurates the renewal of the whole creation, including the physical bodies of men and women. Therefore, whoever believes in Jesus will live and share in his resurrection. And share in his resurrection. And there's, there's these images that keep coming up in the New Testament over and over again to say, like, Jesus is the first of a whole lot more to come, right? That's the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead because his siblings, like believers like you and me, will follow their elder brother in this new life. He's the first fruits. This is the first part of the harvest, which comes in that is a guarantee of the whole harvest to follow. Or in Hebrews, he's the pioneer of our salvation. He's the one who goes ahead. He's the the scout, right? That goes into the new territory uh, so he can lead the way and mark the trail for us. Jesus has led the way for us into the age to come, marked our path into the kingdom of God. We can enter that kingdom as we follow him. Enter first into the foretaste on this side of the completed kingdom and at last enter it fully on the new earth. And then finally, the gospels end with Jesus commissioning of his disciples and of us with him. And this is again, so important in light of all these expectations and then who Jesus actually is and then he rises from the dead and the question is he now he has all power he is the son of man he's that Dan, he's that figure in Daniel who has all the power in the universe so how is he going to use that power by sending people out to preach the gospel it's amazing what will Jesus do with his supreme authority and sovereign power will he use coercive and violent power to crush the enemies who have rejected him apparently not Therefore, Jesus continues, because I have been given this cosmic authority, make disciples. 
through the unpretentious and humble mission of the church in making disciples the exalted Christ, the Lord with all authority will subdue his enemies. But how? In love. The former enemy is to be baptized into the community of disciples, and they are taught the way of Jesus. In the same way Jesus himself carried out his mission, this newly gathered community is to carry out its mission. That's the climax of the story. And again, we can't cover it all, but I wanted to try to make all these connections to the story as a whole, right? How Jesus is taking on himself everything that the Old Testament was pointing to uh, in his purpose. And it starts to answer some of those questions, even what Amelia was asking, like, well, how do we know the kingdom is here? You're asking the same question those people were asking. Wait, you're the Messiah? Well, apparently nothing's changed. And yet here's all these stories about, yeah, right now it's a little mustard seed, but wait, like it's going to grow and it's going to get bigger and you're going to see that one day the full kingdom's going to arrive. But he, but he tr- starts it truly in his life, death, and resurrection. And we'll see what happens after that.